Medical Monday is proudly brought to you with the compliments of Discam. To care. Hey, good morning to you. My name is Kathy Kayla and I'm your host for the next hour for this Discam Medical Monday. Now, about uh, three weeks ago, I invited into studio one of our medical experts. His name is Richard Sutton and uh, he's done health management for top um, tennis players, for top athletes. Uh, he managed um, the... Chinese Olympic Federation. There we go, the Chinese Olympic Federation. And, uh, I mean, he really, really is. He's got, he's got a long, long, uh, resume. So I invited him in because the, we did, the last time you were here, Richard, we spoke about stress part one. Yes. Right. Which you're going to give us a summary of. I, I am. So that anybody hearing this will say, hold on a second. I have to go and listen to that podcast and then I'm going to download podcast for this week, which is uh, Stress Part 2, but you can listen. Um, I think it's just as relevant as, I mean, you can listen to these podcasts as, as isolated, but it's nice when you've got the whole full picture. So the flow. The yeah, flow. the flow. So you can get all of them uh, from the HiFM website, HiFM.com, or from Richard's website, which is uh, Sutton Health, S-U-T-T-O-N, Health, you know how to spell health, dot C-O dot Z-A. That's it. Welcome, Richard Sutton. How are you? Ah, fantastic. You Thanks for having me. I love the topic, and I'm, I'm very excited today. Stress to part two. Stress part two, but this particular one. You're looking but a lot more relaxed. Did you take your own advice? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I feel, I feel maybe too relaxed. It's not, <laughs> not so good. All right. Well, let me, let me, let me just summarize the last show. So, so basically, um, I introduced stress as, as something that affects everyone, and you pointed out quite rightly so that uh, South Africa is the second most stressed nation in the world, and I went and had a look at the study that you, you gave me and it, there were 74 countries evaluated it, they Amazing, took yeah? data from the CIA they, they took data from the United Nations from the World Health Organization um, you know a whole variety of very credible institutions and that's how we are ranked Seven, number two out of 74 countries in terms of stress profile so you know it's, it's a bit of an issue in terms of we, we can't really avoid stress but we also don't want to avoid it uh, for a couple of reasons the first is we can't by virtue of the definition of stress and the second is that stress actually offers potential so the narrative is not avoidance, you know, it's it's more resilience. And in order to create resilience and, and, and buffer the effects of stress and protect ourselves from the stresses we're confronted with on a daily basis, we have to change the way we see stress. We have to change the way we behave um, when exposed to stress and incorporate habits that positively influence our biology to kind of repair the damage that was inflicted by stress and shut the stress response down. Uh, sh- uh, str- shut the stress response down. But I also highlight that there's an urgency to manage stress because stress is associated with, uh, you know, a broad spectrum of health issues, physical, emotional, mental, cognitive, um, you know, predisposition towards premature mortality and, and many diseases. In fact, there, there was a, a statistic that I read a couple of days ago that 75 to 90 percent of doctors' visits today are because of stress. And another very interesting stat was that 48 percent of people in the working in the working world in the last five years are complaining that their stress levels have escalated quite profoundly. Now, a lot of people always, you know, the first the first question I, I get asked when, when I talk about stress is like, what should I take? And unfortunately, whilst while certain supplements are exceptionally valuable in management of stress and, and certainly, you know, creating a, a physiological support and base, um, stress is not a one-pill solution, not pharmacological, not botanical, not nutraceutical. None of those are in there, you know, unto themselves are going to address the, st- the stress issue. It really is multifactorial. You've got to look at it from all perspectives. And today my focus is going to be on pro-social behavior, how 
the way we behave determines how stress affects us. Okay, before we get into today, um, you said let's just go back to looking at the three factors that influence stress. Yes. Okay. You okay, remember so, what those were, yes, right? Yes. So, 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 the, the, oh, so there, there was many more, you know, what, what causes stress in the first place. Yeah. So it's so based on a study called the Whitehall study, which uh, basically involved 30,000 people over a 40 year period. It was established that there's, there's several major provoking elements in, in stress manifestation. And those provoking elements include a lack of control in our environment. So any time we feel stress, we feel out of control. Bottom line. Um, it was an effort reward injustice or imbalance, should I say. Um, so where we're putting in a lot of effort and we're not getting reward, but reward not necessarily only in remuneration terms, but in appreciation. And in terms of prospects going forward, so we put a lot of effort, there's no prospects going forward, there's no remuneration, there's no appreciation. That's a very stressful set of circumstances. We also, I also talked about the fact that lack of justice within, especially specifically a work environment, um, is a big provoker of stress and lack of social support was the other factor that was identified as, as a major trigger in stress. So if you look at South Africa, you can see why uh, we have, uh, you know, the second, the number two ranking on the stressed, most stressed nations of the world um, because we're lacking in all those departments. So you know, it's not no a matter justice of- and no effort reward imbalance and, and uh, certainly no social support and, and, you know, there's certainly no predictability. Everything's out of control and chaotic. One day, you know, is very different to the next. So you can understand why that ranking uh, is certainly is, is there. But today's, as I said, today's message is very much about, you know, change your behavior, change your reality. And in order to understand how behavior affects your, your um, ability to cope with stress, I think I need to go into the biology of stress um, first. So stress is basically divided into two waves. The first wave is known as a sympathomedullary pathway, the first wave. So we perceive a stress uh, region in the brain, uh, the ab- uh, amygdala, basically interprets the uh, emotional cues and then sends signals to the hypothalamus. And the hypothalamus then in turn signals the adrenal glands to reduce the hormone, adrenaline, or epinephrine. And what happens with that is you see a spike in heart rate. We all, we've all experienced it. You get stressed, your heart rate goes up. But it's also responsible for increased respiration. So breathing rate increases, blood pressure increases, circulation to the brain increases, circulation to the limbs increase. You have the liberation of, of energy, so glucose and fat and, and proteins liberated into the bloodstream ready for use. You it's have a fight or flight almost. It is the fight or flight. So here what we have is a situation where we also have endorphins and enkelephins release. So you're feeling euphoric. At the, you're you almost feel invincible at that particular point in time. And at the same time, you also have your immune system in a very aggressive mobilization phase. So your immune system is activated. And this is why so many inflammatory conditions are linked to stress. So theoretically, that's all good. And it's essential in terms of surviving the here and the now, coping with change, adapting to hostile circumstances. Without it, we would not be here today. It was essential for our survival. Now, what we have is a situation where in order to survive the here and the now, there has to be a reorganization of the system. So the body takes a position saying, okay, well, you know, I don't really need blood to the skin at this particular point in time. So it redirects blood away from the skin. It also reduces blood supply to the digestive system. There was actually a German study a couple of years ago that identified that the restriction in blood supply to the digestive system is, is to the extent of about 400% downgrade. It also reduces mobility of the uh, intestinal organs as well. You're also looking at a reduction in blood supply to the urogenital system, reproductive systems, and also at the same time reduced growth and repair. So that's the reorganization. So less blood in the skin, less blood in the digestive system, less blood in the urogenital system, and no growth and repair is going to happen during that stressful episode. 
So it's all well and fine if it shuts off and then everything returns back to normal. But in today's society, when we're having four major stresses a week, it's not going to shut off. So it's just getting compounded, compounded, compounded. So you're looking at the collective cost of that reorganization being corruption to the skin. So skin disorders being becoming increasingly prevalent. This is also a reason why we look so aged when we get stressed. We're also looking at digestive disorders as a result of just this adrenal surge. We're looking at urogenital and reproductive disorders. We're looking at impaired growth and repair, like re- degenerative changes within our structure because of this reorganization. But the biggest influence that this first phase has, the sympathomedullary pathway, is that on the cardiovascular system. Because every time you have adrenaline into the system, you're getting a, going to get a, a spike in blood pressure. Now, this spike in blood pressure actually can damage certain regions of the cardiovascular system, specifically in the heart and within the brain itself. And these regions that get damaged, you, you, you develop you know, kind of they're called vascular lesions, um, can create uh, zones that become rough. And those rough zones are where plaques can accumulate and also create a stiffening of the arterial system in, in those particular areas. And this is why statistically you're looking at such a high prevalence of strokes and heart attacks in response to chronic exposures to stress, um, largely through this reorganization driven by adrenaline. So adrenaline damages the cardiovascular system, predisposes to heart attacks and strokes, as well as creating digestive disorders, reproductive disorders, impaired growth and repair, skin disorders, and so on. So that's adrenaline, but it's essential to survive the here and the now, and it, it really helps us excel and cope. But that's not the problem. The actual problem is the second wave. Adrenaline is neurologically mediated, you know, so a, a set of neurological channels, and you know, it, we we can't sustain it. It's it's literally too energetic. Can we prevent it? We can prevent it to a certain degree, but we don't want to necessarily. We want to shut it down as opposed to prevent it. So. The second wave is, is where really a lot of the damage is inflicted. So in order to kind of continue the stress response, the body then shifts into second gear. So the adrenaline st- uh, stimulates or triggers the hypothalamus, hypothalamus in the brain to produce a hormone called corticotrophin. That triggers the pituitary gland to release adrenocorticotrophic hormone, which then triggers the adrenal glands to produce cortisol. So it's a much more long-winded process, all hormonally mediated. Okay, so it's a whole series of processes. Now, cortisol in the short term is unbelievable. It's very, very necessary to our integrity because it's an immune system regulator and improves responsiveness and function of the immune system. Remember, adrenaline is mobilizing. It's making the immune system very aggressive to combat a hostile situation. Cortisol's job is to say, okay, cool it. You know, we don't have to go berserk. We can just, you know, we can moderate it. So cortisol is essential in the short term. Very, very important. But if you're constantly stressed, week in, week out, month in, month out, year in, year out, what's going to happen is a situation where your cortisol levels have been raised for such a long period of time that it starts suppressing and inhibiting immune system function. And this is why when we've had long periods of stress, we often get sick. But there's something even worse than that, is if you've been stressed for very protracted periods, months or years, your cells become non-responsive to this hormone. So you develop cortisol receptor resistance. And this manifests in an inability to regulate the immune system and subsequently the development of almost an autoimmune state or an aggressive immune state. So allergies and asthma and a variety of different disorders start presenting themselves because of the lack of responsiveness to cortisol, the stress hormone. 
But cortisol also is responsible for other biological, like systemic functions. And one of them is gastric acid secretion. So this is why when we go through periods of stress, we often have reflux um, in response to elevated cortisol. It's also responsible for reduced protein synthesis. So like our rebuilding and repair of our muscular and tenderness and ligamentous system is compromised. It impairs bone formation and increases the degradation of bone. So this is why osteopenia and osteoporosis are often attributed to stress and also the other bony uh, abnormalities. It has a very strong influence on our circadian rhythm. So when we go to sleep at night, it's determined by cortisol. So normally in the evenings, our cortisol is low, and in the mornings, it's high. So as as it starts winding down, we start getting tired, and as it starts winding up, we start waking up. Now, if you're having a stressful event at 4 o'clock in the afternoon on your way home from work or 5 o'clock in the afternoon on the way home or 6 o'clock um, or, or 10.30 at night if you're a lawyer, um, <laughs> if, you, if you have a stressful event, you just spiked your cortisol and uh, unfortunately, it's going to be hard to get to sleep. But now because your cortisol was spiked so late in the day, your whole rhythm is disrupted and you can't get out of bed. And all of a sudden, you're taking sleeping pills to go to sleep. You're taking stimulants to wake up and this whole cascade starts manifesting. But cortisol affects us in a very profound way on a molecular level and hormonal level and it affects three key hormones. It lowers a hormone called growth hormone. Now growth hormone previously was thought that growth hormone is only responsible for growth and, and kind of an anabolic state, so, you know, kind of a, a robust physical state. But scientists have, have discovered in the last couple of years that it's so much more than that. Our liver is completely dependent on growth hormone, our kidneys, our adrenal glands, our cardiovascular system, our nervous system. You know, a growth hormone is, is a key hormone in, in the integrity of the entire system, physical especially. So if we have cortisol degrade a growth hormone or, or sorry, lower growth hormone output affect that axis, unfortunately it's going to lead to a physical compromise. And this is why we often feel weakened by stress. Another factor that uh, has to be considered is is that cortisol also lowers serotonin, and serotonin is a key neurotransmitter or, or chemical that regulates behavior. So this is why we start becoming behaviorally compromised um, in response to stress. And also, low serotonin makes us more susceptible to stress, and then stress makes us, you know, more susceptible to low serotonin. And it's just a vicious, vicious cycle, and it can affect us on a, a very profound emotional level. And then, lastly, just on the, from a molecular perspective, there's a lot more. Is that Stress lowers uh, uh, my personal favorite molecule, it's BDNF, brain-derived neurotrophic factor. So this, this molecule is responsible for cognition. It's responsible for brain cell maturation, brain cell retention, brain cell connectivity, brain cell formation. It is like, it's like super grow for the what brain. What does BDNF stand for? Brain-derived neurotrophic factor. So it's, it's one of the neurotrophins that has such a profound effect on cognition. And cortisol, unfortunately, knocks that out. So here we're seeing a compromise in cognition, compromise in emotional integrity, compromise in physical integrity, all as a, as a result of cortisol. But it gets more. I mean, I sound like a, one of those ads on TV. You know, there's more. And, and, the, and more is it has a very large energetic role. So cortisol is responsible for literally all the energy that adrenaline is mobilized. Cortisol says, okay, let's put everyone back. So cortisol is largely respons- uh, responsible for replenishing lost energy stores, basically depositing fat. And it deposits it around the midsection. It also creates uh, elevations in visceral fat. And visceral fat is pro-inflammatory. We also know that it creates insulin resistance. So again, now we're going to start you know, kind of a dysregulation in a whole weight um, and 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 metabolic integrity as a result of cortisol, and at the same time, it's increasing your appetite, which is making it a lot worse. So you want to eat more, and your predisposition towards uh, or disposition towards putting on fat is is heightened and 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 elevated. But of everything, you know, these these are all kind of for me. This is, these are all incidentals and asides. The big, the, the true danger of cortisol is its impact on the brain. 
And uh, there's been multiple studies on the implications of, of cortisol in the brain. But there's four major ways in which cortisol affects the brain. The first is how it differentiates um, certain brain cells. So what happens is you've got base cells in the brain. They're called stem cells. And stem cells can either become one of two types of cells, one of several types of cells in the brain. It can either become gray matter or white matter. Now, the best way to, to describe gray matter is like a hard drive. So it's like your processing zone. It's, it's where all the information is, is, is stored and processed and everything so that happens. Exactly. Mm. Everything that happens, you know, with, with regards to functionality of the brain happens through the gray matter. We also have white matter, which are the, basically the cells that connect the gray matter, which is important. So you need a perfect relationship between these two types of, of tissue mass. Now, in the presence of cortisol, these stem cells, which normally become gray matter, get preferentially Converted into white matter or, or mature into white matter. So here you're seeing a reduction in gray matter and an increase in white matter in the brain, which in itself becomes an issue. You know, cognition is impaired, connectivity is impaired and so on. But there was also um, a, a studies actually coming out of Yale showing that not only do you have this disrupted, um, you know, kind of cell differentiation, but you also have a situation that exists where the brain starts to shrink. So key regions of the brain that shrink in response to chronic cortisol exposure are those that are responsible for cognition, those that are responsible for memory, those that are responsible for, you know, kind of emotional behaviors. These, these are the areas that are heavily influenced by um, exposure to cortisol. But there are also research has shown that cortisol doesn't only affect us in terms of cell differentiation in the brain and, uh, you know, kind of overall mass of the brain. It also affects connectivity of the brain. So certain regions, all regions of the brain are actually interconnected. The cognitive centers are linked to the emotional centers, linked to the movement centers. Everyone's interconnected. And cortisol, in the presence of high levels of cortisol for a protected period of time, you're seeing these connections break down, specifically the cognitive centers and the emotional centers. Well, of course. I mean, when you have somebody who's been in a hijacking or something, didn't think about it. I just reacted. And this is how, because you know what? If you had to stop and think about it, you would be completely paralyzed. And that's how the brain and the body kicks in. Very much so. But can you imagine that over a protracted period of time? Eventually, these connections disintegrate. You actually don't have the physical, the structural connection between the emotional center and the cognitive centers. And this creates a predisposition between hyper, like emotional states, irrational, you know, irrational behavior. Stress becomes an emotional experience as opposed to something that you can intellectualize and cognitively work through. And that's one of the dangers of chronic cortisol. And then the last thing, so here we've got these three things that have occurred, you know, so less gray matter, you've got shrinkage of the entire brain, you've got all these centers disconnecting, especially the cognitive and emotional centers. But we also have to consider that stress creates a situation where it damages the region that shuts down the stress hormones in themselves. So basically cortisol and adrenaline are shut down by a negative feedback loop. So as they are elevated, the brain detects their elevations and will start shutting them down. Hmm. But the region of the brain called the hippocampus that's responsible for shutting it down have so many receptors for cortisol that over time it becomes damaged in response to chronic elevations in cortisol to the extent where you can't shut down cortisol. So you get stressed in the morning. Four days later, you, your system is still engaged in that stress response. And that is the danger of cortisol really on a cognitive, on a cognitive level, on a structural level within the brain. You know, all facets of brain functionality are negatively impacted. And if I were to take the collective sum of all of those facets, put 
together, it would lend itself to poor memory, emotional instability, poor focus, fearful, anxious, distracted, loss of goal orientation, antisocial behavior, aggressive outbursts. I'm, I'm describing the average person on, during the average week, but that is the impact of chronic elevations of cortisol and the brain. Richard, uh, we've got to take a break. When we do, I want to know why the body doesn't have checks and balances to shut down cortisol production. It actually does. If you've, <laughs> if you've uh, got any questions, any comments, join the conversation. How do you do that? Well, you can text us on 34519. Those texts are charged at 1 Rand 50. Or you can send us a WhatsApp message on uh, 062148. Two three seven four, and you can send us images. You can send us voice notes. Hey, get in touch. Medical Monday is proudly brought to you with the compliments of Discam, pharmacists to care. Thank you so much for joining me. My name is Kathy Kayla, and I will be your your host for the next hour. Well, just under that, actually. Uh, this is the Discam Medical Monday, and this is really the platform where we invite, or where I invite, the top top experts in their fields. Joining me today is. Uh, Neurovascular practitioner. His name is Richard Sutton. You know him well here on High FM. In fact, there's a message saying, uh, "Thanks, your guest Richard needs a set time slot for his own show. Always amazing and informative." Must be my wife. I was thinking, <laughs> yeah, you know, <laughs> you know what? I absolutely agree with you. I think that he's actually brilliant. Oh, I recognise that number. It's Clive. Thanks, Clive. Um, yeah, hundred percent. I agree with you. So oh, we're talking thanks. about stress. We're talking, and this is part of a three-part series. Although that you can listen to each podcast on their own. Uh, try and listen to all three. The first is already up. On the Chai FM website, that's uh, com. Just go to podcasts, go to Richard Sutton, um, sorry, go to Disco Medical Monday, <laughs> and it's, it's right there. But you can also go to Richard's website, um, which is suttonhealth.co.za, and uh, you'll find these podcasts and much, much more. And those, uh, yeah, this particular podcast will be up a little bit later on today. So we're talking about stress, and uh, in South Africa, it's impossible to live without stress. Anybody who says get stress out of your life has no idea what they're talking about. And uh, Richard was the first person to say that, that I've actually ever heard. And you really made me sit up and take notice. Because all of a sudden, it was it sounded very realistic. And uh, just in quick summary, there are basically three things that you can do to counteract or to manage stress. You can't counteract stress, but you have to be able to manage it. The first one is how you perceive it. And if that you, was last show. And that was the last. And this was uh, that was stress part one. So you need to go and listen to that podcast because we're not going through all of that again. But uh, this, we t- the second thing that you can do is you can change your behavior. And exactly. that's what we're talking about exactly. today. And that's how it all starts tying in. You ask me, is there a way to shut it down? And don't we have checks and balances? And we actually have three checks all and balances. You know what? It's, it's like, it's. Uh, have you ever seen how those scientists, you know, it's usually engineering students. And the, and they make these contraptions that this ball runs along there and it hits one thing and when it does that and it gets to a certain level then something else will release. Do you know what I'm talking exactly, about? Exactly. That's how I see the body. That it's got all these different checks and balances and if when this happens that happens. It, it's constantly playing out different scenarios. So you're talking about cortisol. All this, you know, how stress increases increases cortisol. The one side is. One slice of the pie is that it can be very, very good in that stress situation, in yes. that high stress situation, exactly. a hijacking, a, a car crash, or whatever the whatever case the may be. Whatever the challenge may be. Um, but what we're living with is prolonged, exactly. where you've got a full five days of the week. 
and the implications thereof. Which is very bad for our bodies. So, so what are the checks and balances? So the checks and balances are there's actually a third hormone that is released in response to stress. And that hormone is oxytocin. And most people understand oxytocin as a hormone that is only released by women in labor and, uh, you know, new, new mothers. And it's not, they're not wrong because oxytocin is le- releasing copious amounts during that period of time. But you have to consider that that is the most stressful period in a woman's life is labor and just following labor. And that's when oxytocin is at its highest. Now there was a study, um, that was published in the journal Psychosomatic Medicine and Psychotherapy. And it looked at what oxytocin does on a behavioral level and what it does on a physical level. So on a behavioral level, oxytocin is associated with trust, generosity, calmness, empathy, self-esteem, connectivity, optimism, and fearlessness. It's almost the anti-venom to cortisol. You know, if you're anxious and distracted and fearful, it's anti-venom. It's also, from a physical standpoint, which is very important, it lowers cortisol. It lowers blood pressure, so it affects the adrenaline axis. It lowers heart rate, affecting the adrenaline axis. It increases serotonin, which was corrupted by those two hormones. It's an anti-inflammatory, so it regulates the immune system. It's an antioxidant. It increases something called nerve growth factor, which helps rebuild the brain. It's one, it's part of the, it's brain-derived neurotrophic factor actually falls into that family. And it increases Insulin growth factor one, which rebuilds the body. So rebuilding the brain, anti-inflammatory, antioxidant, lower heart rate, lower blood pressure, lower cortisol, absolutely unbelievable. Give me some of that, Richard. <laughs> exactly. So actually, when, when studies have looked at there was actually um, a, a study in psychoneuroendocrinology in 2013 looking at what healthy individuals, when subjected to synthetic oxytocin, would do in response to stress. And they found that their, their whole stress profile shifted. Within seconds, they did not feel the stress. They felt completely like discharged from the stress. And also, when they looked at the biological effects of stress, the hyperactivity of something called the HPA axis, the, the stress axis, they noticed that it, it uh, shut down completely or, or, or shut down dramatically. So we know that you know administering synthetic oxytocin will have a very positive effect on the stress axis. But more importantly, oxytocin has a direct inhibitory effect on the emotional command center of the brain. It affects us deep within the brain, our emotional state, and that really is what drives stress. And this is according to a journal uh, called Seminars in Neuroscience. Now, it was an amazing study. Um, it was uh, a study. It's, I'm actually going to have to read this title. The study was entitled Helping Hands, Healthy Body, Oxytocin Receptor Gene and Pro-Social Behavior Interact to Buffer the Association Between Stress and Physical Health. And basically what that study showed was the power of oxytocin in moderating the stress response. Because what they found in the study is those individuals who have variants of the oxytocin gene, it's called the OXTR gene, those people are very susceptible to ill health as a consequence of stress. So you often get a scenario or situation where two people confront with the same stress. One gets sick and the other doesn't. Why? Is it their perception? Is it their behavior? Is it their Is general it their health? They can be equal, e- equal standing on, on all levels. They can t- approach it in the same way. One gets sick and the other doesn't. And what they found was that if this particular gene is corrupted in any way and your uptake of oxytocin in the brain is compromised, what they see is an inability to manage stress and you do get sick from stress. Whereas those people with an intact OXTR gene, it's a specific variant of the gene, they are completely immune to stress. And that just highlights the power of oxytocin. Now, if this hormone is so amazing and it's a stress buffer, why, why? Do, why, are, why are we 
becoming, why, why are we susceptible to the effects of stress? Why, why are we not immune to the effects of stress? Why aren't doctors prescribing it? <laughs> All these complications. <laughs> so you, you take anything synthetically and there's a problem. But, but, um, the issue with oxytocin is it only stays in the body for one to six minutes. You get one hit of oxytocin for one to six minutes. So all the other stress hormones are there for prolonged periods of time. The oxytocin is just instantaneous. And, and for science, how long? One to six minutes. I know. And then and then what? And then then it's gone. And then you, and then your body will generate it again. No, more, no, no. Because the only other way to release oxytocin into the system is by pro-social behavior, physical contact with others. You know, it even includes eye contact, so touching and hugging and handshaking and eye contact. You know, you know, more sustained, and the way you behave to others. They will release this powerful neuromolecule and hormone, oxytocin. And uh, scientists were trying to work out for years, why is it that you know oxytocin is only released for this brief period of time? And it's actually according to uh, Dr. Shelley Taylor from the University of California. She, she, she is quoted as saying that the sole purpose of the initial burst of oxytocin in response to stressful stimuli is, a direct, is to direct our behavior to seek support from others, to connect with others, to feel empathy for others. So basically, it's a, a built-in oxytocin stimulator because That's if amazing. we behave in that way, because it is a connector, it, it motivates our behavior to to connect and, and rely on others. And by relying on others and connecting to others, um, we produce more oxytocin, thereby buffering the effects of stress. Now, I okay, can't, so just hold on. Slow yes. down, Richard. What are the different things that that we can use to release oxytocin? Let's go through those again slowly. You said it was touch. So I'm going to expound on that okay. because I can't Good. make a statement so brazenly and, and not give a study. Of course you can. can. You're Richard Sutton. <laughs> no, no, no. We've got to bring in some studies here. So, so just from a physical standpoint, physical contact has has a very profound effect on oxytocin. It, it, it triggers a release, and most of the receptors that will trigger a release in oxytocin are the front part of the body. So hugging is especially powerful in the release of of oxytocin. More intimate physical behaviors are also very powerful in the release of oxytocin. You know. With having a child on your chest, the baby on your chest, big stimulus in the release of oxytocin. And think so, of the bonding process exactly, between exactly. parents and children. Exactly, and it is children. a bonder. Oxytocin is a bonder. So just just looking at various pro-social behaviors. So that, that's physical contact. You know, even osteopathic uh, uh, manipulation. You're looking at massage. These these type of things will all stimulate oxytocin. And you touch is the so why important. We loved our podiatrists. <laughs> <laughs> so touch is very very important. But but touch, you know, within that context, also stimulates the vagus nerve. And that's that's a whole other that's part of part three. So let's just look at pro-social behavior for a second. And I'm gonna start with caring. So there was a study published in the American Journal of Public Health and it involved a thousand people over a five-year period. And basically they looked at stressful events over the year, over the five-year period, and the implications in terms of health. What did a big stressful event do to health, or how did it increase the risk of mortality and developing a chronic disease? At the same time, they had a specific group that were caregivers, people who are tangible, assistant to others. So whether it be caring for grandparents, caring for children, caring for groups, caring for the elderly, caring for the sick, whatever it was, they were caregivers. And they looked at the effect of stress over that period of time in terms of increased mortality and health outcomes. In the group that were not caregivers, they were just kind of going about life, doing their thing, the increased risk of mortality following the exposure to a hostile, stressful event was 30%. You had a big stress in your life in that five-year period, you're likely to have a 30% increased risk of dying or developing a fatal disease or chronic disease. Now, when they looked at the caregivers, 
the most remarkable thing. They were expecting similar, you know, maybe a little bit less, maybe a little. But what they found was those who tangibly gave tangible assistance to others that could be measured on paper had not a 30% increased risk of mortality, a zero percent increase in, in wow. mortality in response to stressful events. And if you have to look at their lives, their lives as a caregiver are more stressful than the lives of those who are not caregivers. So then the question so is, that is, is the power coping? of caring. It's but, caring. Is it, but is it Maybe. also about coping it, that you, if you care and it's natural to you, it becomes a your safe, coping mechanism might yeah, be better. Exactly. But, but it was through oxytocin pathways. They did find that there was a measurable increase in oxytocin profiles in those individuals. But then we'll shift our attention to charity. What does charity do for us? So the, the journal that I'm going to reference now was uh, Hormones and Behavior, and it was in 2013. And basically, the objective of the study was to see whether greater charitable involvement buffered the effects of stress. So Which is the, a strange more, study <laughs> in and of itself, don't yeah, you think? It certainly was. <laughs> so basically, you know, giving more, does it protect you against stress? And all through oxytocin pathways. So there were 1,195 individuals uh, between the age of 18 and 89 in the group, and they were evaluated by their collective degree of charitable behavior. So donating blood, giving money, or working for a charity, or attending a community group. Like, yeah, general charity, not just th- throwing cash at a problem, so to speak. And then what they did was they calculated the total number of charitable events and looked at how that um, affected their stress. And you know what, what the what the outcome was, because... Zero percent. Not, <laughs> not <laughs> but what they found was that greater charitable behaviors buffered the association between stressful events and the onset of health, health mm. elements. Basically, those who were very charitable didn't have any ill effects in response to exposure to stress. Now... The interesting thing about that study is, you know, I mentioned a gene, the a corruption or variant in the OXTR gene yes. that makes us prone to stress. Mm-hmm. The group that had this variant that was prone to the adverse effects of stress in response to charity were immune to the effects of stress. Really? It almost over, it, it kind of overrode the, the genetic predisposition was the most incredible thing. They explain that, they can't explain why, but uh, it's, it's just the most remarkable thing that, that uh, came from the study. So that came from the from the charity and from the charity, but yeah. not from the caring. Caring, they didn't actually look at the OXTR gene. Okay. This was specifically the OXTR gene. That's so interesting. Then we looked at there was a couple of studies on compassion. So um, researchers, it was a collaboration study, and it involved the University of Arizona, California, and Toronto. And what they do is they actually perform f- four independent studies, but put them into one paper. And collectively, there are three hundred participants. And what they showed reliably was that the experience of compassion when experiencing or encountering the pain and suffering of others actually lends itself to you lowering your cortisol levels, lowering your heart rate, lowering your blood pressure, and reduced inflammatory markers in response to a stressful event. So if you caring for others who are going through crisis, you know, or showing compassion for others going through a crisis, you are buffered from the, the effects of stress, not to mention what they're going to benefit in response to the, the stressful events so or should, in response to the, the compassion. Do you think they'll ever do a, a Facebook study on <laughs> caring? Uh, you know, when people say, oh, that is so sad, you know, I'm going to do something about it. I'm going to share it. And they share the story. Uh, I'm not, I don't. Because I don't, there is there is definitely a feel-good factor about that. I, I, there is. I mean, I, I have no doubt that um, the the popularity of social media has something to do with oxytocin. 
Uh, we do feel better when we're engaging with others, and and that's a more modern platform. I'm saying it's good or bad, or it's, it's not. It doesn't beat a hug, though. No, no. Yeah. It's, but but it's not to say that. It, 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 and in fact, I have seen one or two studies actually confirming that it's not. It's not. Uh, an isolated thing, but I can't cite them because I haven't uh, gone through them uh, expansively. But so now we've looked at the effect of caring for others, the powerful effects of charity, the powerful effects of compassion on others. And now I'm going to talk about supportive communication. And so there was uh, two studies, actually very similar themes on supportive communication. The first was in the journal Behavioral Medicine. And basically, the study's aim was to assess the effects of supportive communication and the verbal expression of care during and after periods of stress. So basically, when you're going through a period of stress, helping the person you're close to get through that experience. You know, so, you know, if someone's in crisis, you saying, come on, you can do it, just get out of it. You might both be experiencing the crisis, but what they, what they wanted to see was how that affected your own biology. And what they found in stress simulations, normally it's public speaking, the stress simulations, and with negative feedback. So you'll have, you'll, random participants are assigned, you know, to, to this public speaking task. They'll be put in front of a large group or a large audience. And then the audience is instructed to give negative feedback. So like sighing and rolling eyes, you know, like to really agitate. I know. (laughs) (laughs) And, and the participants are unaware that they've been instructed to do that. So they, the participants been asked to prepare a little short talk and then they get negative feedback, which in itself is, is uh, very stressful. But what they found is in these type of stress situations, those who expressed care and provided verbal support to loved ones, people they cared for, had significantly reduced cortisol and heart rate responses to that stress. So by, by basically almost Being empathizing yeah. and supporting someone during their crisis, your cortisol uh, um, is diminished and your adrenal response, you know, elevations in heart rate and blood pressure is also um, uh, reduced to a, a large uh, degree. And Richard, what, how, how come that's in a different category to caring? Because they are very, very similar. I think, uh, you know, it's caring was like a physical assistance for others. This is just verbal support okay. for for others in a short over a short period of time that was more protracted and that was tangible physical assistance okay so basically what the study the conclusion of the study is that the degree of expression of support was the most reliable predictor of stress hormone output during the stress so basically how much support you gave determined how much cortisol and adrenaline you produced during that hostile experience now there was another study and it was the study wasn't on support during the crisis was support following the crisis and how would it affect the recovery process from stress so the journal was health communication and what um, the study involved was three groups so there was an experimental group where the participants had to write a letter of support and care to someone they cared about after a stressful event and then they had two control groups one control group just had to think about it the other control group just had to sit quietly And what they found was that compared to the control groups, those who wrote the letter of care and support following the stress, their stress hormone profile completely stabilized. Within minutes, it stabilized. So the negative effects of stress, the the quicker we can bring it down, the less it affects us. And they brought it down incredibly quickly. The other two control groups, no effect whatsoever. So thinking about it's not enough. So to answer your Facebook question, thinking about it can really um, affect probably not as much as actually getting getting stuck in. And basically the final thoughts on those two studies of the expression um, of support 
basically we're seeing that expression of support or, or supportive communication dampens stress hormone release um, in response to stress. It also speeds up the recovery process following stressful events, which are both in itself very, very valuable. But where I'd like to kind of end off on this note is a study which basically involved everything. <laughs> That's so the caring, the charity, it, the All compassion. pro-social behaviors all together. It was caring, compassion, empathy, you name it, all put into one. Okay, before we get there. Yes. Let me tell you that uh, my guest is Richard Sutton. He's absolutely phenomenal, as you can hear. We're talking about stress, and uh, this is actually part two of a three-part series. <coughs> Excuse me. And, uh, geez, um, all right. If you've got any questions, let us know. 34519, that's text line. You can also WhatsApp on 062-148-2374. We're going to be wrapping it up in about five minutes from now. So, uh, yeah, get your questions through. Try and keep him in studio because it'll be a few weeks before he can come back. Exactly. All right. Do it. Okay. So hold on, not you. Oh, you got to wait. I, I thought it was you got to wait. Okay. That delayed gratification—that's <laughs> also good for for stress levels. Medical Monday is proudly brought to you with the compliments of Discam Pharmacists to Care. Thank you so much for joining me. Yeah, you've, if you've just tuned in, well, sorry, we're almost about uh, done. So you're going to have to get to highfm.com, go to the podcasts, and listen to uh, the podcast of today's show. We're talking about stress. This is actually part two in a three-part series. My name's Kathy Kale, and my guest is neurovascular practitioner Richard Sutton. You can also get to his website, which is suttonhealth.co.za. He's got all the podcasts there, and uh, plus more, plus lots, lots, lots more. All right, so we're talking about the study. Yes. You were going to tell us. So, so basically, I've covered the impact of. Uh, caring for others, the impact of charity, the impact of empathy, the impact of uh, compassion, the impact of supportive communication. And I'm going to just finish off on a collective study on all pro-social behavior and stress events. So the study was actually a Yale study. It was published in the, in the journal Clinical Psychological Science last year. And the objective of the study was to determine whether engaging in pro-social behavior buffered the negative effects of naturally occurring stresses on well-being. So the, the, the events that we experience on a daily basis, can pro-social behavior protect you against it? So the methods of the study were very simple. Basically, they, all participants performed like a daily evaluation of how many stresses they had um, and a daily evaluation of how many pro-social behaviors they performed. And it, the pro-social behaviors encompassed everything. So it was helping strangers or friends in needs, giving charity, empathy, care, you name it. And the stressful events included work, health, finances, family events, and so on. Basically, at the end of the study, they, they kind of tallied it. And they, what they found was that the average individual over a weekly period experiences four stressful events. And the average individual over a weekly period will be involved in 11 pro-social behaviors. Now, the outcome of the study was, was, was very clear. Within the study groups, those who reported the lowest levels of pro-social behavior, so below that 11 points, also reported the greatest susceptibility to stress. Basically, stress affected those individuals who were not engaged in pro-social behavior. And the more you were engaged in pro-social behavior, the more buffered you were from stress. So much so that if you exceeded that 11 pro-social behavior, so to speak, you're completely immune to the effects of stress. That's a very, very so actually powerful. actually are built the more you physically give, to need each other. Exactly. So the more you engage in, in these positive uh, behaviors and, 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 and positive life experiences, the more protected you are from stress. 
largely through oxytocin pathways, but to two other, through two other pathways as well. And if you look at, you know, the evidence over the last couple of decades, we know that social support during life stresses promotes health protection. So we know that connecting to others when we're in crisis, we know that is a buffer. But it's been assumed that it's the receipt of support that has protected us from life events. And to a certain degree, it does help. But what this new wave of research, and I cite a lot of studies here, this new wave of research is showing is that the actively providing care and actively giving to others and all of these positive behaviors and effects are the true stress buffering system. Hmm. Whereas, at, you know, we used to assume that it was actually the receipt as opposed to the giving of. And they even identified the mechanisms. The mechanisms is the oxytocin system, which I've described in detail. There's also another system called the reward circuitry within the brain that is, that is also facilitated by prosocial behavior. And then lastly, the vagus nerve. Um, is also activated in response to prosocial behavior. And the vagus nerve is the off switch for stress. You ask me, is there a way to turn off stress or is there something can override? You stimulate the vagus nerve, you have turned off stress. It lowers Im- immune profiles, inflammatory uh, processes. It is the most powerful channel we have in managing stress. And those people with strong vagus nerves and robust tone in their vagus nerves, those people are also almost uh, impenetrable when it comes to when it comes to stress and negative health outcomes. So interesting. And that's what I'm going to talk about next show. Okay. Well is the, the vagus nerve and how to turn off the stress response once it's engaged or once it's in effect. Because once uh, what stays in Vegas doesn't <laughs> necess- or shouldn't necessarily stay in Vegas. It's so interesting because a lot of what you're describing, Richard, is counterintuitive. You know, when we stressed Often we we don't want to be bothered by noise. We don't want to be bothered by people. We don't want to. Do you know what I mean? Just I'm just thinking about like my own reactions in an extremely stressful situation. The last thing I want to do is go and hug somebody. Exactly. And you have to look at the anti so, ancestral past. So our genetic material, our, all systems are designed for an environment that doesn't exist today. So when we whenever we were confronted with a stress, we were a unit. We were a group. We had that social. Now we become very. Isolated and compartmentalized And also society is totally intolerant to failure Totally intolerant to weakness Totally intolerant to anything other than success so if Which you're needs in a state to be of, re- redefined well, by the that's, way. Uh, So we have to We're part of society and, and we have to adapt accordingly But uh, now what we have is a situation Where you get stressed And most people, you know They're not interested Go sit in the corner until you're better And then you, you come out we, we, There's zero tolerance and also, you know, that's that that's the assumption, or that's that's a, a way we've been almost programmed to behave. But if we step out of this recent programming, it's not something that's historic. It's a recent program. You step out of this and go back to ancestral past, go back to our religious roots, because all of this, you know, charity, caring, giving, compassion, sharing, connecting. What am I describing there? Yeah, I'm describing, you know, I'm describing Judaism 101. You know, it's so so. We have to go back to these roots in order to overcome this this new world that has been created, and this new world that we created is is basically stress. You know, instead of having a stress sporadically, you know, once in a week or, or once every or twice or three times in a week, we're now having stress multiple times in a day. We can't shut down this axis. It's compounded by environmental stress. It's compounded by you know dietary stress. It's compounded by many other factors as well, and that in itself is lending itself to a, a corruption of the system and an inability to manage this hostile state. 
Absolutely incredible. So it's really going back to basics. And there was one, there was just one other study that uh, I'm not, not going to go into the details of the study, but it, it looked at prayer and the impact on oxytocin. And prayer is a trigger in oxytocin release. Okay. So prayer. Prayer. Hugs. Pro-social behavior. Caring. Charity. Compassion. Uh, supportive communication. Get involved beyond Facebook. Get involved in life. It's so interesting. One of my favorite quotes, Richard, comes from Gandhi, who said, uh, the best way to find yourself is to lose yourself in the service of others. And that's also counterintuitive. You know, when I'm trying to find myself, I'm going to go on top of a mountain and I'm going to, um, and I'm going to, I don't know, going to sweat lodge and uh, going to do all these sorts of things because I'm finding myself. It's not. It, it, it really is. And often these things do seem counterintuitive. Yes, yes, they, they, they do. But um, again, it's like taking that first step. It's getting out of your comfort zone. You know, we've got plenty researchers substantiate principles that yeah. have governed our existence for thousands of years. And I love that and, we have to go back. And basically just take a few steps back to take a few steps forward. And, you know, we've got all of this, you know, changing our perception of stress, changing our behavior in, in stress. And then we have to learn how to shut the stress response down. And we have to also rebuild the damage. And this is where nutraceuticals and supplements come in. And this is where, you know, does meditation work? Doesn't it work? Does, is yoga effective? Is it not? And this is where these topics become relevant. But you have to go through these phases first. First, you've got to, to shift your mindset. You know, organize it in a way that, that can enhance your life, not detract from your life, and then f- repair the damage, learn how to shut it down and manage, you know, kind of the, the day to days. Yeah. And playing the victim also. I mean, I'm sure that that's, that goes back to our it's first a real point. Reappraisal. You know, reappraisal. It's, yeah. uh, you Change know, we, of perception. Exactly. Exactly. Um, Jonathan, thank you so much. It has taken, it's taken a while for me to get to Jonathan's <laughs> message. Uh, he says, good morning. My name is Jonathan. My question is, is there a clinical or rapid test to detect high cortisol levels? Great question. There's Thanks, a salivary John. test. Very quick. Um, and you'll just speak to your doctor and there's a blood test. And cortisol has to be tested at various intervals during the day because it's very high in the morning and it's fairly low in the afternoons, uh, or should be. Um, so it, it can be, it can be tested very effectively, um, salivary and blood. Speak to your doctor about it. You might have to do it at various intervals during the day to get a true or accurate depiction of where your cortisol is holding. There you go. And just like that, that's how we get to the end of this Discam Medical Monday. Thank you so much to my guest, Richard Sutton. And uh, you can go and check out his website. It's suttonhealth.co.za. You can also go and download uh, the podcast from highfm.com. Thank you so much, Discam. And uh, I will see you this time, same time, same place, next week. God bless. Stay well. Bye. Medical Monday is proudly brought to you with the compliments of Discam, pharmacist who care.